Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Film. I'm your host, Joel Cherney. Lee J. Cobb is likely one of the best examples of what is called a character actor, even though the term is often considered to be a slight. Yet Cobb had success on so many different levels, from stage to film to television, that his best-known parts are still worth... Welcome to New Books in Film. I'm your host, Joel Cherney. Lee J. Cobb is likely one of the best examples of what is called a character actor, even though the term is often considered to be a slight. Yet Cobb had success on so many different levels, from stage to film to television, that his best-known parts are still worth seeking out. In his book, Lee J. Cobb, Characters of an Actor, Donald Dewey shows Cobb's importance in both acting and current events from during his career. The book was published in 2014 by Roman and Littlefield. Don talks to me about Cobb's background, how it affected his career and his life, and how that life was changed during the 1950s blacklist period. We also talk about some of Cobb's greatest roles. Welcome to Donald Dewey. Hi, Don. Thanks for talking to me. No problem, John. I'm sure younger filmgoers, a lot of younger filmgoers, probably would not know the name Lee J. Cobb. I have, I'm a little older, so I have heard of him, but it wasn't until I read the book that I remembered a lot of the specific roles from films that I'd seen. But I also found it interesting that you used parts of his career to illustrate, illustrate some other social and artistic concepts. But let's start with your background. You've got extensive writing experience, but what's your educational experience and writing that led you to decide that you wanted to write more as much as you have about film? Ah, that's a good question. Uh, actually, I have now published about 40 books of fiction, nonfiction, and drama, and the film books are actually just one niche of that. I've done, a, I've done several novels, um, also a history of... Um, political cartoons, um, and also a whole other sheaf of uh, books, believe it or not, dealing with the history of baseball. Actually, I was going to ask about that next. So, yes, no, I saw. <laughs> that, and it actually made me made me even more interested in your writing. Uh, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm a big baseball fan, so that was interesting when I saw that. Yeah, that was actually, it was a friend and I, well, how do you get interested in writing? That's always a a crazy question. I mean, yes, when I was 13 or 14 years old, I used to write, uh, let's see, these these kind of James Bond kind of things, which I'd write a chapter and I'd give them to my brother. My brother would say, no, I don't like this, change that. And the two of us, that's how we used to spend time after school sometimes. And then when I was in school, I went to... uh, I actually I went to both high school and college uh, to a Jesuit school, and one of my early teachers was Daniel Berrigan, and um, 
he's mostly known, I think, to most people now as the the major war resistor during the Vietnam time. But he was also a poet, and um, he encouraged me a lot. And in fact, to the point where he'd say, I don't want you writing the assignment tonight. I want you instead reading these three books and go home and then give me a special book report next week on them. So along the way, I did get a lot of encouragement from people. Um, Then after I got, uh, after a few years, I started writing for newspapers because at a certain point, writers find themselves at a fork in the road. They can go and they can study and become teachers and even teaching fiction or they can stay on the streets. And I never, never was comfortable with the classroom. And so I always was a reporter for newspapers or uh, just a freelance magazine contributor, things like that. And then I spent um, then I spent 14 years in Europe. And that also, I think, uh, beyond the actual writing, it let's just say it gave it gave me more things to write about so in terms of where the writing comes from as ultimately anybody would have to answer this question it comes from life experiences i was going to ask you about the sports books but before i mention that have you written anything about berrigan have you ever considered writing anything about berrigan no i think he's written enough for him about himself uh you know i mean i just don't find that a uh an urgent thing because the two of us worked together a great deal in during uh, parallel because I was in Europe, he was here, uh, but we we both did a lot of uh, political work during the Vietnam uh, War, and so uh, you know, and I also did a lot of uh, writing during that period too for the what were at that time were called the underground journals. And that is an int- it, it's a period that's. Uh, we are obviously seeing a lot of writing about now, and, or we have, and it's given the recent uh, periods to, to the post-Vietnam era, you know, just ending 50 years yeah, well, ago, or 40 years ago. Unfortunately, a lot of it is not, I mean, a lot of a lot of politicians have an interest in calling it the post-Vietnam era, and unfortunately, some of the lessons not learned then uh, are still happening now, and nobody seems to be aware of it, and they just want to Oh well, we'll dismiss that. You know, like it didn't really count. Uh, you know, uh, yes, it did count. And um, the idea of people being branded with being associated with that period is really itself a political calculation in uh, what we might, you know, we can now call the, you know, Mitch McConnell era. And so, don't get me started on that. Okay, <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> no, I understand your points about that, and I also agree with you about the concepts of forgetting the we don't learn from the past like we should. And that's, of course, always one of the big issues with history: is do people pay enough attention to it? And I think you would probably agree that the answer to that is no. Or even if they do, they still use it for their own purposes. There you go. Yeah, I think you're. you're I think what you said, the latter part of that, is far more uh, relevant. Yeah. So, but what about the sports books, uh, baseball in particular? Obviously, you have well, to be a baseball was, fan to write about it. Yeah, I grew up, uh, and this I'm, I'm sure also will uh, kind of be obscure to some of your listeners, but uh, I grew up actually only four blocks away from Ebbets Field, the old Brooklyn Dodger uh, stadium. And in those days, 
uh, it wasn't like today where, you know, like every game was a night game. Um, in those days, the Dodgers used to play games, uh, their afternoon games started at 2.30 in the afternoon. And I went to school, you know, within two or three blocks from there. And uh, so we always got out of school in time to go over to the stadium. And it was like you could get seats for 25 cents or 50 cents. You could sit out in the bleachers or you could even get standing room, really, behind home plate. And um, now they have the 81-81 schedule. In those days, it was 77-77, 77 home games, 77 away games. And there were a couple of years there where, thanks to that kind of convenience of timing, my brother and I actually uh, were there, physically there, for more than 60 games out of the 77. So, I mean, like, so we were, you know, we grew up as fanatics as anybody else in Brooklyn did. And, in fact, I knew... Personally, I knew Jackie Robinson. I knew Gil Hodges. I knew Carl Farillo. Uh, and these these were kind of neighborhood people. Uh, and that's, you know, another concept that, that's kind of foreign today with, you know, most of the players kind of living in their Waldorf mansions uh, in suburbia. But these people lived in the heart of Brooklyn. And... Um, and so, you know, there was there was nothing, uh, I would say, nothing, A, strange about being interested in baseball, or B, being particularly um, overwhelmed by it. I mean, it was just something that was part of the natural uh, atmosphere of, you know, getting up in the morning. I mean, you, you went to school, you did this, you did that, then you, you know, you listened to the Dodgers. I mean, I can remember my grandmother, who was a, an immigrant from Ireland, and in those days, she, you know, this was even before television. She used to stay up. In those days, the the furthest west that the teams would go would be St. Louis, and uh, and in those days, of course, the 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 games would get broadcast back to New York. It was after eleven o'clock. Sometimes it would go to midnight, and she she was she was blind at that point, but she would stay in front of the radio. She would never go to bed until these St. Louis games were over. And she'd be sitting there in front of the radio cursing this Dodger that didn't get a hit, uh, blasting that St. Louis Cardinal who did get a hit, and it went on and on. I mean, this this was a kind of culture. This is part of the culture. And so vice versa, you can also understand what the shock was when the Dodgers left. Yeah. Yeah, I think we could go on and on talking about baseball as a cultural experience, especially during that period. My mother's 91 and... There's no question her favorite sport is still baseball, and I'm sure it has a lot to do with she grew up with it when it really was the sport that people lived with. Right, exactly, exactly. And, you know, it was, and, and you know, the idea of uh, when television came along, and tele- I mean, football is a creation of television, and um, and the idea that it's become the national pastime is always, to me, a very, very dubious proposition. What it is is... Television is the national pastime, and football happens to be part of it, uh, which is not quite the same thing, I don't think, as when baseball was known as the national pastime. Right. Well, let's move on to Lee J. Cobb, since that's specifically the reason why we talked, but I really liked a lot of the background, too, having spent some time learning more about what you had written. Why why did you decide in 2014, or to public, you know, I know it came out in 2014, but why write a book about Lee J. Cobb at this time? There were there were some very strange things. Uh, I lived in Europe, as I said before, for 14 years, and I had never really thought about writing movie books at all. And um, 
one day I was sitting in a restaurant with this uh, friend of mine, and she was a uh, film critic, and she just said, did you ever think of writing a, a book about film? And I said, I, I could not believe, Joel, that I had even, I, you know, that these thoughts had ever been circulating. I said, if I ever were to write a book about film, there would be four subjects I would go after right away. And she said, what? And, and frankly, and I was astonished that these things came out of my mouth so fast. I said, the first one would be Marcello Mastriani. The second one would be Jimmy Stewart. The third one would be John Huston. The fourth one would be Lee J. Cobb. And as it turned out, I actually ended up writing three of those four. I, I, I did the Mastriani book, I did the Stewart book, and I've done the Cobb book. The only one I have not done is John Huston, and, and the reason why I haven't done it is because somebody's already done it, and there's nothing I could add to what this book uh, has already done. But so that was kind of like the first time that the thought ever occurred to me that I could do these kind of things. And and years passed before I ever, you know, I, I would write articles sometimes about film. The first one I did was the uh, Mastriani book. Um, the second one was the Stewart book. And then finally, a, a couple of years back, um, I thought, you know, I, I've done the other two. Why don't I do the Cobb book? Now, Cobb had a particular uh, attraction to me, both personal and, um, let's just say, theoretical. Um, to uh, get to the personal first. To begin with, believe it or not, I have an uncle, or had an uncle, who was his, who could have been his twin brother. And I mean, physically. I mean, the guy just looked so much like Lee J. Cobb that my aunts used to say, you know, whenever they'd get annoyed with him, they'd say things like, sit down, Lee J., sit down, you know, and, and that kind of thing. And that became kind of like a family thing. It was, it was very funny. Then um, when I was at college, I used to do a weekly radio show. And, um, and one of the features of the weekly radio show was an interview. And one of the people that I decided I was going to interview was Lee J. Cobb. And I went to the Plaza Hotel and we had an extraordinarily good hour or so of talking. And, and in the course of talking, I mentioned the fact that um, I had written a play. And he had not been on Broadway, really, since Death of a Salesman. And he said, and that was years before. And he said to me, he said, let me see it. Send it to me. Send it to me. Well, I cannot tell you that within something like, and mind you, I, I'm 18 years old at this point, 18 or 19 years old, and um, something within two or three weeks, suddenly uh, my agent is getting excited because she's heard from Cobb's agent. He really likes to play. Um, and on that basis, they were already drafting directors and things. And in in the casting. I mean, like, his Cobb went back to California to do a movie. But uh, all of this suddenly, you know, like, it's, it's, it's out of control. I mean, just this passing conversation we had. And, um, well, as you can tell, it didn't happen. And the reason it didn't happen was because he had a heart attack. And he could not take on the physical requirements of a play. And, in fact, that's why he ended up doing the um, television series of Virginian, because he was able to um, make a lot of money and kind of work minimally. 
because in, in those kind of westerns, television westerns, you really had to show up uh, once or twice a week. Uh, or, like, I guess the more popular one was Gunsmoke. James Arness used to work, like, four days a month. Uh, he, he would get all his shots done uh, in those four days, and, and, and sometimes that would involve, you know, different episodes. He would be, you know, acting with one guy in episode one, then he'd be acting with somebody else in episode nine. Uh, but because these people had the kind of swagger they did, they were able to uh, enforce in their contracts, no, I want all of this done within such and such a time. And that's, that's the way they kept And the same thing was true of Cobb in, in the Virginian. Um, and so you had kind of like three or four other regulars. Anyway, so all of this was the initial part. Then when I was in Rome, I ran into him again because he was over there like all the American actors in the 70s were over in Rome shooting films over there because they were, again, they were getting very, very well paid for relatively little work. I mean, they would would do about five or six scenes. Everybody remembers, you know, probably the most famous ones. Clint Eastwood, obviously, was the most famous. Charles Bronson and Lee Van Cleef also uh, kind of, like, shored up their reputations by going over there. But they were not the only ones. I mean, we're talking about scores and scores of people, whether it was uh, Rod Steiger or Robert Mitchum or Arthur Kennedy, all of these actors of the 60s and 70s, they worked over there quite frequently because it was, uh, as I say, it was good money. And, and in many cases, it was, it was great parts, too, the kind of parts they could not get back here. So I met him over there, and again, we talked, and we remembered the, the incident of the, the heart attack and the play and all of that. So all of that kind of, you know, like all of this is explaining the personal connection to it. The professional connection or the theoretical connection to it was the fact that this man was really involved in every, every major incident involving actors in the 20th century. Um, Started off, I mean, people don't remember it, but in the 1920s, there was uh, what you would call proletariat street theater. He was involved in all of that. Then he joined the group theater, which became, which actually was not the, you know, raving left-wing thing that a lot of people would like to remember it as. If anything, it was a far more polished uh, aesthetic group than certainly the the left-wing proletarian theater was. Um, But it did, and it it ended up in the sites of the House Un-American Activities Committee later on, because, uh, excuse me, it didn't think, you know, that anybody who joined the Communist Party uh, was automatically a traitor. And, and, and the far more interesting part of it was that I would say like 75% of the members of the, um, of the group theater were Jews. And there was nothing so rampant among the House and American Activities Committee as anti-Semitism. I mean, like almost if you go... If you go through the history of that, you see how much they had Jews, American Jews, in their sights. And this, of course, was not strange at all for um, for the for New York, for New York theater, which at that time was 
the capital of the theater world. I mean, the idea of the regional theaters that you have today, uh, that did not exist to such a prominent degree as it, as it does now. But the fact is that New York was the capital of the theater world. And one quarter of the population of New York at the time was Jewish. So there was, there was hardly any kind of, uh, coincidence in the fact that there were so many Jews in the American theater. Um, so this was, you know, this was a way of these characters, um, and who what? Anyway, Carb was part of that. He was part of, um, the film, uh, when, when the first blacklist hit, he was part of just about every kind of movement that involved film, whether it was long, uh, long-term contracts, breaking contracts, um, the entire history of Hollywood it was, in one way or another, was kind of like conveyed through his own personal struggles. Uh, so all of these were reasons. And then, then, of course, there was the biggest, to me, if there has ever been a classic written for the American stage, it was Death of a Salesman, and Cobb was Willie Loman, the original Willie Loman. And... Um, you know, to this day, uh, you, there was a time, Joe, where there would be people in, in New York, actors uh, of a generation now, I guess you would say, uh, of the age of the Pacinos and the Hoffmans, the 60, 70-year-olds. B.J. Cobb was considered the greatest actor in America, mainly because of Death of a Salesman. And so, you know, all of these were reasons to me to be interested in the subject. Well, in fact, it was the part, I mean, some of the, the political and the some of the social background you gave it early on in the book, and it goes through the rest of the book, too, but that was the part that I found particularly interesting because some of that background I didn't remember or I didn't know as well, and it is interesting how he got he was involved in all of that just because he was there, I mean, to a large extent. It was just a normal aspect during the 30s in particular, and it's not a big surprise. People don't remember that period of time that, given the economic situation, it's not a big surprise that political unrest would be something where people would be drawn to something different because of how bad things were in general. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and don't forget, this the... Um the other thing, of course, like this probably is on a, a, a little more theoretical level, the other thing which distinguished the group theater um, was Stanislavski and the, what became known as the method. Right, I was going to be asking you about that, so that's good. That's right. good. This, was, this was a direct uh, descendant of what Stanislavski had done with the Moscow Art Theater in, uh, in Moscow. And... These were the first people, and of course, they themselves then became the parents of the actor's studio and the various Brandos and, and, and you know, all those people. Um, so that this, too, was considered, you know, like something striking. Um, and in fact, a lot of the criticisms, a lot of the critique of the plays that the uh, group theater put on, a lot of them were just, you know, even though they sometimes they didn't like the plays, they were just absolutely startled by this new approach to acting. And, and it was different. I mean, it, it's hard to remember now, but once upon a time, I mean, these uh, plays in New York were, 
recited. I mean, and I mean recited. Uh, you know, like it, it was, you know, hand to the hand to the breast and shout up to the balcony. And and if it wasn't like that, it was this this kind of like English mannerism kind of thing that you can still see on the old movies in in um, on Turner Classic movies. And the uh, method and the actor's studio kind of uh, Stanislavski training that completely uh, overthrew all of, all of those concepts and and brought in a new kind of actor. I mean, they were not interested. The only the only people I always found this interesting that every theater the group theater lasted for a decade, but the only so-called leading men that came out of it. Um, were Franchaton and John Garfield. All the rest of them were what you would consider, you know, like what is casually called the character actor, uh, the Cobbs and the Luther Adlers and, and people like that. Um, and even, you know, even John Garfield used to absolutely, you know, uh, get hot when somebody would call him a star rather than, rather than an actor. Uh, so that, they were interested in the um, the parts. They were not interested in the uh, the glamour, the so-called stardom. Uh, the only one who really ever did come out of it as a star, as they say, probably was Franchard Tone. And 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 Tone uh, himself was um, he always was very very uh, let's say uncomfortable with the idea that. Um, the others kind of looked at him and said, well, now you've got all that money out in Hollywood. Why don't you give some of it to us? And he did. I mean, he really did. He, he, was, he was kind of guilted into it. And he sponsored a lot of, he financed a couple of their productions before they collapsed altogether, just simply because he considered himself to himself something of a traitor that he had not stayed to do these, you know, uh, Clifford Odette's kind of plays. You talk in the early part about how the the theater company was run, the concept that everybody had a voice, and that concept that while everybody had, you know, there were people who ran it, and there were directors and and writers, of course, but even every actor had a voice as to what was going to be performed, how things were being run, and those are the kind of things that probably nowadays, no, it would be completely unbelievable to most people that that you could actually run no, a theater believe it or not, there are some small theaters that do still operate like that um, when you have a, when you had something the size of the group theater you had of course the other part of the democracy was the chaos and you had you had constantly you had chaos uh, because you know this group wants this that group wants this uh, and so you did need at a certain point and that's why you had a couple of breakups I mean at one point um, you know, they all went to Hollywood. They all decided they're going to, you know, get out of here. Uh, and they broke up two or three different times. And little by little, the strongest voice in it became probably Ilya Kazan. Um, Strasberg was there, but he was not... Uh, most, a lot of the actors hated uh, Strasberg. Uh, and this was a, this was a uh, an experience which was kind of repeated when the actor studio got got created in the, the late 40s uh, and the 50s. But the difference is, and, and I, I guess if you talk to anybody today and they talk about Stanislavski's method, 
there are two groups which come immediately to mind, and one is the group theater of the 30s, and the other is the actor studio uh, of the post-war time. But there was an enormous difference between the two of them in the sense that uh, also for for social reasons, uh, as, you, as you said before, the 30s were a time of incredible social and economic ferment. And so, you know, you had a, a far more kind of dedicated uh, resolve to doing plays which you know, as they say, you know, like had a message. In the late 40s and 50s, when they started the Actors Studio here, which had the same principles and were run by basically the same people. I mean, once again, you had Kazan and you had Strasburg and, you know, and you had um, a couple of other people who were in, uh, Cheryl Crawford, who were involved in the uh, group theater. But there were two major differences. Number one, it just so happened that when the actor studio started, that was also the time that television started. And you had all of these live dramas being shot in New York. Uh, every, every Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday nights, it was Studio One, it was Playhouse 90, it was the Philco Playhouse. And so there was a lot of work for the actors uh, trying out this new medium. The second part of it was because uh, there was this new work from television. These actors were not obscure very long because when, the, you know, the, the Studio One on Monday night was shown at 10 o'clock, they were seeing that in Los Angeles, too. And so these actors, and now we're talking about the Paul Newmans and the Joanne Woodwards and the, and the, and the Steigers, and, and, and all of these people suddenly became nationally known, practically uh, before they, you know, like, uh, had finished the first year at the, at the actor studio. And what was the other part of it was that they were all leading men and they were leading men and leading actresses, uh, whether they were Lee Remick or Joanne Woodward, Anthony Franciosa, these were not like the group theater actors who were, as you know, using that phrase again, uh, the character actors, these were leading men and Hollywood was craving, new actors, uh, mainly because of things like uh, the House and American Activities Committee. They wanted to divorce themselves from a lot of these old faces. They wanted new faces. They wanted to show people that, you know, that they were still thriving and, and, and ready to go. And so the, diff the experience was totally, totally different. Um, that even though they, they, they had the same training, uh, that their own success, their own social success, uh, was totally different because of the general surrounding social situation. You talk about his about these television and how it suddenly gave work to people more work. And you look through Cobb's television uh, experience as an actor, and if you go through the fifties, you're right. He's he's on one anthology show after another in, in all kinds of different roles. Literally from fifty one right on through, it's just one after another. You see him listed as as a character, and it's it's it clearly showed that uh, there was a way now to continue to act in you know in a but using still going with television. Well, you, you I mean that I, that was true of just about anybody who you know, and and the bigger the name, and especially especially him, because this was after death of a salesman, and he did have a reputation. Um, 
the one blanket on that, of course, was the House and American Activities Committee, and and it, and these blacklists did circulate, and uh, it made it very difficult for anybody who had, let's just say, a sentient human being who was over forty years old. It made it very difficult for them to avoid all of these green grocers on their blacklist lists. Uh, that's why you had a lot more twenty-year-olds. That's why you had a lot more of people like um, Newman and uh, and even Brando, uh, people like this, who were not involved in the thirties and could not, and you couldn't point a finger at them and say you did this or you did that. They didn't even have to, you know deny anything because they just simply had, hadn't been around then. And so that's why Hollywood found a lot of these people safer to deal with. Um, it, it, it's, a, it's a fascinating period, and, and, and unfortunately it's, it, it has been just so... Um, you, you kind of think it's over, and then you come back. I mean, we talk today about, and we, and we feel so superior to it. Oh, well, how could these people, you know, how could these crazy senators, you know, do this, or this congressman do this, but then, you know, I, it was, how long ago, was it a year ago that this clown Peter King was, was chairing this, this subcommittee saying, no, no, we only want to uh, bring in and talk about Muslim terrorism. And his own party, people in his own party said, wait a minute, there were things like Oklahoma City, too. I mean, shouldn't we be talking to them? No, 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 we just, we just want to talk to the Muslims. I mean, it's not that we have gotten away from any of this. It's, it's just, just different yeah, ways of doing the same thing. Yeah, it, it, it's different names, different, you know, whatever. And this, of course, uh, and as I, you know, did in the book, and it was very hard talking even to his children about this because at a certain point he'd name names. And um, he broke down, he named names, and by that time, they had driven his wife into a sanitarium. Uh, they had, uh, when he, when, and the reason she, I mean, she would go to the to the supermarket, and they'd be there checking out what she bought. And so after a while, this, and then of course this is without even getting into, you know, like suddenly the jobs dried up, um, and there were very very few people from that period who had the guts. To fight. I mean, one of the uh, the other person, and probably nobody, suffered more than Cobb, or probably the only one who did was Sterling Hayden. Um, Sterling Hayden hated himself for the rest of his life because he had given names, and he used to call and, and even the books he wrote about himself, and he would call himself a weasel, and the the self. Um, I, I, you know, he he would beat himself up constantly, and and he would like you know, and but and and you had to be a very very strong character. For instance, I mean, one who was, and Hayden always said this: one who was was uh, just sticking to actors for a second was Robert Ryan, and Robert Ryan just told them to go screw themselves, and Ryan was the one who put up Hayden when nobody else wanted to put him up. And it, and it takes a particular kind of courage to do that. And, you know, and, and I think we always have to be wary of kind of saying, you know, like, well, he's a coward, he broke up. Uh, and, 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 and a lot of these people were not forgiven, ever. I think, I, I don't know if you got to the point where even at the end, toward the end of his career, 
Cobb was acting in Rome. And um, one of the other actors in the picture, in this Italian picture with him, was James Whitmore. And at a certain point, um, the director, uh, no, the, the agent, Whitmore's agent, said to him, well, how, so how are you getting along with Lee? And Whitmore said, well, I don't talk to him. Why should I talk to somebody who betrayed you know, people like him? This was 25 years later. And so, you know, a lot of people just simply did not forget. But as you point out, the problem is it's not like Cobb just immediately decided, well, I'm just going to roll over and, and name names. It certainly oh, right. wasn't. It wasn't something that he did, hap, you know, by happenstance. There, you know, it was, a, it was a terrible process for him to decide that he had to or that he oh, felt that was, he had to. Absolutely. And there were, and, and you know, and there were, there were, Horrible, horrible examples. Uh, I, I think, in a sense, even far more pathetic than the people who. who um, uh, let me actually let me just back up for a second. Uh, Nehemiah Persoff, who was a wonderful character actor, and worked for Cobb, worked with Cobb in a lot of movies. Uh, Persoff told me a story which is which was scary. He said he was doing a play with Cobb. Uh, on television, and at a, and he was playing a guard, and at a certain point, the the uh, he's supposed to put Cobb back in his cell, and at a certain point, he decides to improvise the line. He says, "Get back in there, you you, you scum," or something like that. And he said, and it worked. You know, the director loved it. Twenty years later, twenty years later, Joe. They are together working in um, a, another picture in Italy. And Cobb looks at him and says, it was because of my testimony, wasn't it? And Persoff says, what? What are you talking about? What? He said, that's why you call me a scum, throwing me into that cell. And Persoff said, I, I, had no, I had no idea what to say to him. Because all I was doing was improvising a line in the context of the play we were doing. It had nothing to do with... But for 20 years, he had carried around that thought that Persoff had done it as a criticism of his testimony. I can only imagine that, yes, he was able to continue to work, but if that was the kind of thing that he was carrying around with him at all times, it couldn't have made work always particularly enjoyable. No, it did not. It did not. And, uh, you know, this was a, um, you know, the, 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 thing, the thing to remember about and, and the actor Robert Vaughn uh, is wonderful on this. We talked about this a couple of times. And he said, you know, he said, let's not forget who, who were the so-called friendly witnesses during all of this. And it's true. If you look at, at the old uh, films, of who testified in front of the House American Activity Committee as friendly witnesses, you know, the guys who went there to denounce all this communism around them. They were all actors, with one exception, they were all actors whose best days were behind them. Um, Robert Taylor hadn't done any of the Ivanhoe things in, in years. Ginger Rogers hadn't been Kitty Foyle in 12 years. Uh, Richard Arlen, nobody even remembered who the hell he was. Uh, 
these were all people whose careers were over. The only, not over, but they certainly were, they were no longer considered A-list actors. Uh, the only one who was still considered an A-list actor, and this is an hilarious story, and it also tells you the, the level of uh, preparation that these people did. The only one who, who went there as an A-list actor to say the committee was doing a great job was Gary Cooper. And the only reason Gary Cooper went, and this is hilarious, is because he received a, an accusation that he was the head of the Peruvian Communist Party. The reason he got that accusation was because the head of the Peruvian Communist Party in the mountains, in the Andes, was using Gary Cooper as his code name. It's, of course, like you've pointed out, going back, we, it's unbelievable how little things like that, even today, can taint people because somebody either, as you say, you know, like in that situation, misunderstood something and decided, well, I'm going to run with this. I'm yeah, going. Exactly. We're, we're going to call him forward because somebody in the Peruvian mountains is using his name, mm-hmm. even though it it didn't mean anything by itself. Precisely, and and the other thing, and this is this I think is really important to understand is that the major movement, the major people behind all of these the ones who welcomed the, the House and American Activities Committee to Hollywood, was this group that was headed by John Wayne and Ward Bond. But John Wayne never appeared in front of that committee to say that they were doing a great job. Why? Because there was no way in hell any of these studios were going to let the John Waynes or the Bing Crosbys or the Bob Hopes get in front of a microphone and suddenly tell this you know, 75-year-old senator uh, who could barely see that he was a great American hero. There was too much of a... John Wayne was supposed to be the hero, not them. And the fact is, it was it was a box office thing to make sure that none of these, you know, uh, hero types ever went close to a courtroom. Never, never, never. Because that would have confused people. They would remember, as, as Vaughn told me one time, he said, don't forget that people might look at that film one day, but, you know, two years from down the road, they'll remember he was in front of that committee, but they'll forget why. And so nobody wanted to take that, that chance. And, and I'll say, and this, this is also worth, I think, pointing out, it wasn't just the left-wingers who were blacklisted. There were a couple of screwballs, I mean out-and-out screwballs, like Adolf Manju. Adolf Manju was probably the, the, the hardest-working character actor in Hollywood for something like 25 years. He, was, he also had a lot of screws loose, and he believed that Stalin used to come over to the United States at night and bring gold bars so that he and Roosevelt would put these gold bars together in Fort Knox for safekeeping. I mean, this, these are not exaggerations. And this guy said these things in front of the House and American Activities Committee, that Roosevelt and Stalin were plotting to uh, corner all the gold in the world. Okay? So suddenly, this guy who had been working, you know, making four or five films a year, he couldn't work anymore either. Because he too was bad for he too was bad for box office. Because what good's a character actor when people are saying, 
oh no, that's that's the screwball who thinks Roosevelt and Stalin are you know hoarding all this money. They 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 would not they would not be good for the, for the box office, and it took years. And and so Mashu ended up blacklisted as much as some of the lefties. And it wasn't until Kirk Douglas got uh, hired him in um, uh, Paths of Glory that uh, Mashu could work again. Well. And Kirk Douglas was known for hiring other blacklisted people as well. So, yes, uh, yes, yeah, exactly. Well, that's what I like. I was saying at the beginning. One of the things that I found so interesting about the book was you use Cobb as a great example or an illustration of what the political and social situation was like from the 30s, but through the 50s when particularly all of these things were going on with it. There's been a lot of writing about the blacklist and about uh, the House on American Activities Committee, but I think you gave it a much, by using Cobb, it was a nice way to give it a human face, There, how it was affecting individuals as opposed to the whole concept this was going on, how people were affected on, a, on their daily lives because of all of this, because of the, the witch hunt. Yeah, well, I'll take that as a compliment. Thank oh, you. Oh, yeah. That, that I mean, was the purpose. That was the purpose, yes. Let's talk yeah. a little bit about some of the acting parts, acting-related things, because we've we've used the word, you've used talked a little bit about method acting, and one of the things I like about the early part of the book is that you go into details to what that mean, meant. You obviously broke out the concept that this was not, you know, it has a, when people hear the phrase or when they heard it, they had their ideas. And you clearly showed that there was more to it than just a, it wasn't a gimmick. It wasn't something that, as you pointed out earlier about it, was a, a it was an important part of changing how acting how people acted. And um, you, you you go into a lot of detail about that, including the fact that it wasn't as Stanislavski didn't invent it. It was something that people had done, but he he was one of its major proponents. Exactly, and in fact, I, I you know, uh, to skip for a second back to the book I did before Cop in Hollywood, I mean, I was surprised, even though I, I'd kind of taken it in, absorbed it kind of uh, unconsciously, how many people from the Actors Studio, for instance, and I'm talking about Pacino and Shelley Winters and, and, and uh, Ben Gazzara, how many of them pointed to Jimmy Stewart as, classic example of a method actor even though he never never would admit it i mean like you know because he wasn't doing it consciously he was doing what they were doing but he was doing it kind of instinctively and um and they and they they would say you know look at the difference if you know when if you have some week to look at all the movies that they show on turner classic movies Look at the difference between what Stewart does and what Cooper or Wayne or uh, all these others do, and the difference is, is is actually alarming when you see it because all of them had kind of like built this character, these stoic characters around yup yup yup, you know, and and like the dialogue was fair, the uh, emotions were kind of like uh, two or three eyes left, right, and center. Stewart, on the other hand, was an emotional wreck. I mean, he was always emotional. He was always um, playing these characters who could uh, go from the so-called uh, benign characters of something like it's uh, uh, Mr. Smith goes to Washington to being probably the nastiest character and 
this I always found hilarious. The people always thought of him as, you know, Mr. Smith goes to Washington or as Harvey. And in fact, nobody made more brutal westerns than he did. I mean, Jimmy Cagney had nothing on him. I mean, he was ready to do the hardest, hardest characters that you could ever imagine. Or even, even I mean, what, what is a gloomier picture? And I've always thought it was hilarious that they always show it's a wonderful life around Christmas. It's supposed to be a Christmas movie. No, it isn't. It is actually the, the bleakest, darkest movie you ever want to see. Uh, and Stuart goes relatively crazy in it, as he did in most movies. But the point I was trying to make is that, that he, that just because somebody's called a method actor and somebody else is not called does not mean they're not you know, drinking from the same trout. Um, but probably the, the single most successful film ever made from, um, I'd say, a, a congregation of method performers was on the waterfront. And there you had all of the um, different aspects of it coming together. You had, first of all, Kazan was the director. Then you had Cobb from the group theater. You had uh, Brando. You had Steiger. You had even Marie Saint um, from uh, and Carl Malden uh, from no Malden was also from the group theater. Uh, you had Saint Steiger and uh, Brando from the Actors Studio, and you could tell. I mean, you could tell that there was such a level of intensity, even the small roles in that picture. Uh, by people like Leif Erikson. Leif Erikson played the kind of like the investigator. He came from the group theater. Um, Martin Balsam, who played his assistant, he came from the actor's studio. They all kind of like coalesced around this. And, and you can see the improvisations, the, um, the kind of direction that Kazan always had. There's not a scene, for instance, I think it's one of the most striking things, there's not a single scene in the picture between Cobb and Brando that's not in some way, shape, or form violent. I mean, every single scene is Cobb slapping him around or slapping him on the cheek, pulling him on the cheek, slap, you know, punching him in the arm until you get to the final violent thing at the end. But uh, that was a single direction, and they all knew it. They all had this kind of, they were all on the same beam. And if you if you watch that film, you can see, and, and Saint was just as good as the men in it, uh, you can see a kind of personal commitment to the role that you just simply would find foreign in any film shot in the 30s. You know, I mean, it's just, it, it, to me, it's striking. I can see that film a hundred times, and I can still see things that I had not seen before. One of his other major roles that... Is probably if anybody's going to know a Lee J. Cobb role, it's going to be from Twelve Angry Men. I was just going to say that. Yeah, that that to me that is the second best thing he ever did. Um, the uh, again, there you had a completely serious atmosphere. You had twelve of you know well-known actors in New York City with Henry Fonda, and uh, there was you know this. There was no stardom stuff about that movie. They all sat around, and that's why Sidney, that was Sidney Lumet's first film. And how Lumet, you know, I mean, you, you, it, it must have been, he must have felt like 
the lion tamer going into the, you know, in, in, into the cage. Because, I mean, like the smallest parts were still, you know, the Jack Klugmans and, and, and the Robert Webbers and, 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 and the Begleys. Everybody knew who these people were. I mean, these, these were all solid actors. Uh, you know, and then, you know, and, and the fact that there was such a level of professionalism throughout that film just told you that, you know, that's why Lumet chose that as his first film, because he didn't want to have any, you know, divas around him. And these none of these guys were divas. Um, but if you want to see, I think one of the classic examples uh, to, to get back to Cobb and what the method what the method technique can bring you is watch Cobb right near the end where he just gets into this final rage and starts tearing up his son's picture. And that's kind of like the parallel to the scene in On the Waterfront where he's, where Randolph has just testified against him and Cobb is passing him and he just wants to kill him. And the way the, the, gradations of violence just build in him. That you cannot do without the kind of training you receive in Stanislavski. Those two scenes, the, uh, the, one, the one in 12 Angry Men at the end when he's tearing up the picture and the one in On the Waterfront. Uh, that, to me, are, are two of the, the best examples of what uh, the method is all about. Well, and the good thing is both 12 Angry Men and On the Waterfront are easy to see. I mean, they're easy to find either in, in video, but also, like you say, they show up quite often on Turner Classic Movie. So what, getting a chance to see them, this is one of the great things, is is not right. that difficult. What would you say are some of his other roles that maybe are worth trying to reach out to see just to get a continue to, to, to get a sense of what he was like as an actor? Um, that's a good question. I think, um, what would be his, what would be his third? I think in a sense, there was this, um, I know this, uh, a lot of people don't think so, but I think so. Um, there was a picture, uh, Anthony Mann was a, uh, wonderful director in the, uh, 60s and the 70s. And he made a lot of westerns, and most of them were with Jimmy Stewart. Uh, they were they were kind of partners, and and, he, and actually, Mann was the one who who turned Stewart into you know the hard nose. Um, but Stewart, at a certain point, and Mann had a falling out, and um, the decision was made to put Gary Cooper into this Western instead. And it still worked. And it's a very violent Western. Uh, it's called Man of the West. I think that, and Cobb is, you know, he's absolutely nuts in this picture. He plays a, a lunatic, and he's supposed to play a lunatic. Uh, I think that is that will give you one sense of his character. But the other... The other picture, which I think ranks up there with um, On the Waterfront and 12 Angry Men, and some people say might be even better, not because he's, he's better in it but uh, than in the others, but simply because it's a bigger part, is the Brothers Karamazov. Um, he really is the father. I mean, he comes right off the pages of Dostoevsky, and to a, and to a degree that none of the other characters do, frankly. The picture is not a very good picture, 
but but Cobb is fabulous in it, and uh, and that was that was kind of the, the consensus too when it came out that he just left. I mean, you know, he had other actors like Yul Brynner and Maria Schell and and uh, Richard Basehart, and he 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 just left them all in uh, in the dark because uh, he's the only one I think who really had that rapacious sense of Karamazov's character. Uh, so those are the three. I, I would start with those three. And then, for fun, I would put in uh, Man of the West. Did you see his TV version of Death of a Salesman? I, yes, I, I did see it. Uh, I'll tell you the truth. I was, uh, I'm not going to tell you how old I was, but I was very, very young. I, my uncle even took me to the original Broadway play. And I wish I could remember a lot of it. I don't. But maybe just some of it just kind of like, you know, like infiltrated my skin or something. Uh, but uh, my uncle always told me that, yes, we had, I took you to see that. Uh, my uncle, this was a very strange story. My uncle was blind, but he was always getting tickets because he, he worked, uh, he had a newsstand in Brooklyn. And people were always coming by and uh, because there was a courtroom upstairs and there were always a whole lot of celebrities coming in to be tried on one federal court charge or another. The Danny Kays and the Ray Milans and all of these people. And they all end up at my, my uncle's. And um, one way or another, he would end up with a lot of tickets. And we, we, would, go to, we would go up to the lake all the time. What are you working on now? Uh, or do you want to talk about... All any current projects? Well, I'm down to the last. Uh, there are a couple of novels of mine actually that just came out. One is uh, there's a novella out which is called All the Aliens in the Neighborhood. That's online. People can get that online. Also, a double book. And I, I've written also a series of uh, police procedurals. Um, and the double book, the first double book came out. It's called The Ideas They Wanted to put two in one as a kind of enticement for the subsequent books that will be coming out over the next four years. Uh, but one is called The Bolivian Sailor, and the other one is called The Fantasy League Murder. So those two are out. Um, they are both online and in paperback. And I am, I think, within a week, I will finish a book on James Stewart Blackton, whom I'm sure nobody out there has heard of. But James Stewart Blackton was probably as responsible for the American film industry as Thomas Edison and D.W. Griffith was. And so this is the story of, basically, of the um, origins of, of American film. Well, that's good, because it gets you back into the history part of it again. And as I say, that's what comes through this book so well, is, is the historical background that you bring to the discussion of Cobb. Are there any other actors at this point, or have you pretty? You said you had the four, and that were yeah, not- I, no, I, I can't see myself doing that. Uh, aside from everything else, Joel, I'm running out of life here. Oh, that's, you know? yeah, well, how about more baseball, though? <laughs> no, no, absolutely no baseball. <laughs> uh, although, no, I've got to take that back. A couple of uh, about ten years ago, a friend and I wrote a biography of Hal Chase, the the baddest of the bad guys. And we just heard from Nebraska Press that they want to uh, that they bought the rights to it and they want to reissue it as a new book, which is fine. 
So if you ever see something called the Black Prince, that's about Hal Chase. It's a, it's a wonderful character again. Uh, see, some of these, you know, some of these things that you, you, you get praised for, um, just like actors all the time get praised for, you know, being great in this part. Writers sometimes get praised for uh, the books they've written. But I'll tell you the truth, it's just as in movies, it happens to be the writing, you know, which allows the actors to be good. And just as in books, it happens to be uh, the subjects, which make the writers look good. So, you know, I mean, like, you, you should always kind of, like, back up when you, you know, like you kind of start feeling like, oh, you've accomplished something, you know, like unprecedented. No, you haven't. Uh, you wouldn't have gotten any kind of recognition at all without the kind of subject that you're dealing with. Well, that's true, but you also did uh, a lot of research on this and talked to a lot of people, so there's no question that that helped. But oh, I will, uh, I will agree with you. There wouldn't be, it wouldn't make much sense to write a book about Lee J. Cobb if there was no Lee J. Cobb. So, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And probably, you know, it, 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 a lot of people would say, "My God, look at all these empty pages." Here. Like <laughs> well, thank you for talking to me about this book. And as I said before, I hope people read it and look behind just the you know the, the surface part of the of a great career, but also all of the interesting aspects of Hollywood history and film history and social history that comes through with it, with other parts of it. It definitely gave the book an extra layer that uh, is certainly makes it even better. Well, I appreciate you saying that, man. Thank so, you for talking to me today and, and especially about such an underappreciated actor. Take care, man. Thank Thanks. you very much. I hope you enjoyed Don's discussion of Lee J. Cobb who deserves to be celebrated for his life and career. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more New Books in Film.